This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This episode is hosted by Jessica Brodkin, who you may remember from episode number 11. She's filling in as a guest host for All Possibilities as I take care of my newborn baby. Enjoy the show! Imagine being an addict, making it through recovery, becoming a single mother, and then finally finding love. Only to be faced with miscarriages, not once, not twice, but four times, followed by a second trimester stillbirth. How does one recover from that? Today, you'll hear from author Erin Carr and how she's helping others walk through the fire. I'm Jessica Brodkin, filling in for Julie Chan. Let's rock and roll. Welcome to the All Possibilities podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. So, Erin, you have had a really remarkable life story and so many journeys that are really impressive and challenging and interesting and interesting (laughs) never dull (laughs) never dull so what kind of what are the sort of main stages of your life that you've gone through so I say I I guess if I would categorize my story in some nutshells I um I was addicted to heroin from the age of 13 to 28 I used off and on over Mm -hmm. those 15 years um, I was somebody that hid it from everybody in my life from the age of 13 to 23. I think I had maybe one or two friends that knew. Um, and I wasn't somebody that looked like a drug addict. I went to a prep school. I was a cheerleader, a volleyball player. I got straight A's. I had lots of friends. There weren't any sort of warning signs. And I was really, really good at hiding it. Once I got caught and went to rehab the first time, I spent the next five years relapsing and going back to rehab and, you know, sort of the darkest five years of my life (laughs) were spent between 23 and 28. Um, At 28, I got pregnant with uh, my son, Atticus, who is now 14, and that changed the whole trajectory of my life. Um, So I think that, that a big part of my story is not just sort of the the addiction and the drugs like yes that all happened and it there's you know a lot of sort of remarkable events that happened and and you know fascinating stories but the real story for me started when all of that was stripped away um you know Atticus was born and the biggest the biggest thing that happened for me when he was born is that I had been carrying around all this self-loathing my whole life he was born I hadn't felt much connection when I was pregnant with him. He was born and I looked at him, held him in my arms for the first time and felt an overwhelming love, a love that was stronger than any hatred I ever had for myself, which was huge because that was a turning point. What happened, what's happened since then is that I've spent years sort of learning how to take care of myself, healing and walking through all of the shame and the 
depression that I had and the emotions that sort of drove me to, to use in the first place. And I think that's where the real story lies because, you know, we all go through challenging things in life. And I think that the, the important or essential part of, of healing is being able to confront the parts of ourselves that we don't want anyone else to see. And when we can do that, we start to let go of the shame. And that's where healing starts. You know, I think shame is a huge motivator. You and I have talked about this before. Yeah. Um, shame certainly motivated me to, to, to not reach out for help. I didn't want anyone to know that I was on drugs and, and even bigger than not wanting anyone to know that I was on drugs. I didn't want anyone to know that I was depressed and that I felt like I wanted to harm myself or kill myself. That was scarier to me than people finding out about the drugs. So once I was able to sort of tell the truth about what was really going on with me, it was a game changer. And, um, you know, since then I've had other challenges, as you know. Right. Yeah. That brought <laughs> um, us together. Yeah. That brought us together. So, I mean, people that don't know our connection, <laughs> I met Jessica, um, because I lost a baby. I went into premature labor in my second trimester and delivered a stillborn, very, very small baby. And I had leading up to that had had four miscarriages and they couldn't figure out why I was miscarrying and they couldn't figure out why I went into premature labor. I was at a point where I felt just this utter devastation. And obviously, as I just <laughs> laid out, I'd been through some stuff before. I knew that I knew that I'd get to the other side of it, but I didn't know how. You know, I was really stumped as to how I was going to get through this sort of level of pain. And, you know, my husband and family around me had asked if, you know, maybe you should go back to therapy or, you know, and I, I just intuitively knew that this wasn't about my head. You know, this wasn't about getting help for my head. I needed sort of soul therapy or heart therapy. And my father-in-law, whom you know, <laughs> had uh, a psychic um, medium medium right? that that had suggested to him she said you know i really think aaron needs to go to reiki and um i had heard of reiki i had a vague idea of what it was and you know i thought okay sure like i'll try it like not really having any expectations about what it could do or what it was so I looked online, like Googled, you know, Reiki healer, in New York City, and went through a few and I found Jessica's um, site. And there was just something when I looked at through her story on her, her, you know, about me on the site where I just felt like this was the right person. It was exactly a week out after losing the baby. And I um, reached out to Jessica and I think I saw her that day or the next day. And met her in her old space on, on 28th Street, this weird, weird building, very weird building. Oh my God. But had a life in this fantastic room with all these plants. And, you know, I don't know. She walked in and, and, you know, I'm fairly tall. I'm like 5'8, and this like, like adorable little woman with like wild hair comes in with her bag of crystals. And, you know, it was summer, so it was really hot. And, 
And uh, I told her what happened. And, you know, I think our, that first session, she spent like two hours with me. And I sort of, <laughs> I recall like just sort of, it was like this moment of sobbing through like this sort of like guttural <laughs> pain with this complete stranger. But when I walked out that day after doing this energy healing with her, I mean, I felt completely different than when I walked in. You know, I get choked up thinking about it because I was, when I was in that room, when I walked in there, I just felt like just, I just, just this, this sense of loss that was so profound and, and, uh, Walking out of there, I just knew that there was light at the end of the tunnel. It was like, as much as I had had faith in my ability to walk through things, I, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know when I was going to be able to do it. And the fact that a week out from this horrible tragedy, I was able to walk out that door and like feel like the air and the sun on my face and feel like there was hope was huge. <laughs> so since then, Jessica has been a part of my life. And, um, you know, I've been able to do even deeper sort of spiritual work and work on myself. And, you know, they, I think that it was another example in my life of sort of those greatest, the, one of the greatest moments of pain, being able to have this huge silver lining. And that silver lining is that I grew closer to a spiritual connection than I had had before. I, my family bonded more than they had before, both my husband and son and my father-in-law and my sister-in-law and many of my friends have since been to Jessica. And it was, it was this event that was so horrific, but it somehow brought us all together. And I did deeper work on myself than I had done in the past. And I've done a lot of work on myself. So that was, but you know, there was, there's always more work to do eternally. So there was this huge gift that came from that. And, you know, I got pregnant less than two months or two months, exactly, like almost exactly two months after I lost that baby. And now I have a nine month old, <laughs> you know, and I, I had this, this feeling when I worked with Jessica and we talked about that sort of energy that had been inside of me. And I, I still felt that energy with me so strongly that I knew when I walked out of there that day that, that that baby was still coming, which seemed completely crazy and illogical. If you told anyone that, you know, I'm somebody that had had, you know, four miscarriages and a second trimester loss. And then I was sure than I had ever been that, that my second child was on his way and he was. And I, you know, I think that's, I think that's a testament to not, you know, to a, to sort of the way the universe works. I completely believe that, that I was brought together with Jessica for a reason. And I also think that, you know, when we can take our greatest failures and our, our greatest moments of pain and, and turn them into lessons, it's not that you want those things to happen. They suck. There's no way around that. They, they're, you know, these are not like fun things to go through. But there's beauty in being able to gain something from like that level of grief. And, you know, I guess that's sort of like 
what our whole deal here is in life is sort of walking, you know, learning how to walk through things. And then we gain like a higher spiritual understanding. And then we're going to get another test and we, we figure out a way to walk through that or we don't. And then we're going to get the same test again. Cause I think for years with me, particularly with like the drugs and like handling my mental health issues, I was getting the same test over and over and over again but I wasn't learning the lesson. <laughs> I wasn't able to confront it, you know? And I think that's, that's a huge thing for people. They can't confront things, you know? So they'll stay in abusive relationships. They'll stay in toxic patterns um, and shitty jobs, you know, all levels of, of being stuck in things because they don't want to confront something. Um, you know, it's, I've often talked about this in my advice column when people are in a, you know, pretty much abusive relationship and they don't really want to confront it. It's easier, you know, I think psychologically for people to stay in abusive situations than to confront the fact that they've been in one because they feel ashamed. And again, that's like that whole, the whole the, shame, the complex. whole shame thing that shame motivates people it to, to stay immobilized, you know, um, and I just, I think that that's, you know, it's, I know it sounds, it sounds simple, like, oh, just, you know, let go of your shame, like tell the truth, be transparent. But these are not easy things to do because we're programmed from a very early age not to tell people how we feel. You know, I think a lot of us have grown up in situations where, you know, and this isn't to, to, to knock anyone's parents, everyone, everyone's on their own journey and doing doing what they, where they're at at that time, whatever, you know, spiritual level they're at at that time. But I think that, you know, um, I've, I think that, you know, sort of basic, basic self-care, which is a huge and difficult thing to do is to tell somebody I feel blank. It's really one of the hardest things to do at times is to tell somebody, you know, I feel hurt or I feel sad or I feel angry, you know, um, and that really keeps people from, from healing. So, I mean, I guess that was a very long winded answer to your first question. (laughs) You covered a lot of bases. That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We really, it's nice to have someone who's so open, you know, it's real. I don't have to pry anything out of you. It's just like all comes out. Well, you know, I think that's part of it. Coming up, you'll hear Erin tell us more about how she uses her story to help others. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. Hello, world. I'm Michelle Park. Hello, world. I'm Stacey Eagle. And welcome to Mom's Got, Got This. We got this. We are so excited to host this show. We got this. We're going to have a show Monday through Thursday, and every day we're going to be talking to one amazing guest who also happens to be a mom, but every day we're going to be asking them about 
different parts of their life. What inspires them? What makes them happy? What makes them sad? What did they do before they made it? And most of all, their mom journey. Because these women have really made it. They really have. And they're all moms. Which is, I think, amazing in itself. Like being a mom is already a full-time job. It's a full-time job. And there's highs and there's lows and we're busy and we're juggling. And these are all working moms. Mm-hmm. So we want to hear their stories. What inspires them? What gets them down? What are the products they use and the recipes to make life easy? What products do they like? What they don't like? <laughs> <laughs> and also, I'm so excited about this. Every episode, we're actually going to hear from you guys, the listeners, because we want to hear your mom's got this moment. We want to hear about why your mom. So we want you to join us Monday through Thursday every week. And don't forget to subscribe. So make sure you go to our website, momsgotthispodcast.com. And use our hashtag. Mom's got this. <laughs> <laughs> Premieres May 14th on Mouth Media Network and sponsored in part by luxury footwear brand Tamara Mellon. Erin, so please share with us how you use your writing to help others. Okay, so I started writing um, professionally in 2010. In 2009, I had... Um, I was going through a breakup <laughs> and had just folded my business. I had a clothing line for a few years that had done well. And then in 2008, I, I know, I know more and more. I've had like 50 lives. Just wow. <laughs> Holy um, just in this lifetime. Yeah. So I had a clothing line. We had done pretty well. We were in Barney's and boutiques all across the U.S. And then in 2008, when the economy started crashing, a lot of the boutiques stopped paying me. And I would have had to borrow money to produce the next season. And I realized that I just didn't care that much about it. And I wanted to really figure <laughs> out what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I had I'd gone to Italy on this family vacation, like right after a breakup. I came to New York after Italy and was spending a little time here and on a, had sort of this chance encounter with this um, writer who was uh, dating a friend of mine. And we had gone out, like sort of walked around the city the whole day. It was hot. It was, you know, in you know July in New York City. He was a writer and we were talking about it. And I was telling him I was trying to figure out like what I wanted to do next. And he said, I really think you should be a writer. And why'd you I, listen to this guy? <laughs> He's just some random dude. Something, no. Yeah, totally. Some random dude. I mean, we're like Facebook friends now, but like I'm, really, it's very and I've meaningful told him to like that he sort of changed the whole, my whole path That's and amazing. something just sort of clicked for me. And I decided I was going to go back to school and, um, take writing workshops and wow, uh, see what happened. And so I, I started a blog <laughs> called rarely wrong Aaron, which is, the name came because people would always ask me for advice or ask me, you know, questions like, you know, stupid questions like, who was the actor in that show that was on ABC <laughs> that was about the family that, you know, it shows that I had never seen, but I would have this strange, uh, not strange, but like this, this ability to recall really stupid information. <laughs> so people you know, would ask me. And now, I mean, everybody could have been on Jeopardy, right? Yeah, I totally could have been on Jeopardy. Although it depends on the category sports, not so much. It's okay. Everyone has a category. (laughs) Everybody has an Achilles heel on Jeopardy. (laughs) So I started writing my blog 
And shortly, and taking workshops, and shortly after I started the blog, someone's like, you should do an advice column. So I started doing an advice column on my blog called Ask Erin. Since then, so 2010, I started branching out and, and you know trying to write some personal essays, submit them places. Um, I won an award, an Eric Hoffer award for a story that I wrote that was in the um, Best New Writing 2012 wow. anthology, had a couple of essays that were picked up here and there. And um, I guess when did I, in 2015, my advice column started being run on Ravishly. And it's still there today. I ended up getting a job working for Ravishly initially as an associate editor, and now I'm the managing editor there. And it's Can we also- share how many hits we have on Ravishly? You so know? the yeah, we get about a half a million per month. That's amazing. Unique readers. So it's a great, huge audience. Um, the column has grown. I get about 60, it was, it was about 50 and now it's about 60 questions a week from people. Um, and obviously I can't answer them all in the advice column. So I sometimes do Facebook live. Sometimes I'll answer some on Instagram, um, you know, wherever, (laughs) wherever I can sort of squeeze them in. Um, it's, been interesting because with the whole Me Too movement that's been happening since last year, the end of last year, I, I've had such an increase in the amount of questions that I get, mostly from young women who write in and ask me if what happened to them was sexual assault or rape. And it is shocking. I mean, it's not shocking. I don't know why I'm saying it's shocking. It's not shocking, but it, it, it really hits you when it's person after person after person. I'd say right now of the 60 questions I get a week, at least 10 or 15 are that, which is a really high percentage. Um, it's something that on Ravishly as a, an editorial team, we've continued to sort of keep that conversation going. I recently had a question from a man who wrote in and he asked, do you think I'm a rapist? Because he had been on a date with a woman who, um, you know, they'd been, they dated a few times and then they had sex. And after that, she just sort of ghosted him, like kind of was really short in her text messages and then stopped answering altogether. And, uh, then he heard, you know, it's about a year later and he hears from somebody else that she's told a mutual friend, yeah, he basically date raped me. And he's going through in his head, like, you know, he said that he's like been agonizing, like going over the night over and over in his head. And he's like, you know, the only thing he remembers is that early in the night they had, you know, been out to dinner and had some wine and that she had said, oh, you know, I'm not going to sleep with you tonight. And then they ended up having sex. And he's like, you know, I didn't do anything physical to coerce her, but now I'm trying to like, did I like push her into it? And, you know, I think that this is an important conversation. And I think we need people of all genders to participate because, I don't think, you know, I don't think this guy is a rapist, but I think that there is a conversation around consent that needs to happen. You know, we can see with like the Aziz Ansari thing. Do I think Aziz Ansari is a rapist? I don't, but I think that there is sort of conditioning around consent that has to change, you know? Um, and it, it, it's a, it's a, it's such a, a tricky topic. And I think that Um, one of the things that, you know, this is an example of like one of the things that I like to do with the advice column is to take things that people are really struggling with. And I think as a country, 
we are really struggling with this conversation right now. And so it's one of the things that's really topical for me in the advice column. In addition to the advice column, I've written several articles. I work a lot with sexual assault. Yeah. A ton, as you know. Yes. Or maybe you don't know. Um, but no, I, I think I figured. Yeah, figured. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge thing. I mean, I work in a very specific kind of category. Right. Um, the, the, the sexual assault I deal with is mostly like incest and, right. and people who, who were sexually assaulted very young. But I see a lot of patterns in my work, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you do too. So my question about sexual assault for you in, in terms of your, your questions, what are the patterns that you are seeing? They're term- almost all date rape. Almost everything is Almost date rape. all. Or I've had a lot of questions where it was like, Somewhat like the friend of a brother. I've had several where it was like, oh, how do I tell, you know, my brother's friend raped me and I never told anyone. Um, They're almost all from people that they know. And it's, you know, I've had some where it was like, it was very clear cut, like, you know, forceful rape. And then there are others where it was, there was alcohol involved and there was some sort of like, oh, well, like, he was really pushy and I didn't know how to stop it, which I think is really common for young women. And one of the things that in sort of talking about consent that I really, you know, I hope for like the next generation is that we need to have these conversations around consent much earlier. And it's, it's conversations with boys that we're raising about checking in with their partner and conversations for young women to to give them the language and the skills to be able to say when something doesn't feel good you know and i think that that that's a you know that's something that's really missing because i i certainly when i was younger had times where i ended up in sexual situations with somebody where like i just didn't know how to get out of it yeah and it wasn't they didn't rape me but i certainly i wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't wanting to do it. I just sort of was like, oh no, like I've taken it too far and now I don't know how to walk it back, you know? And that's, you know, when I look back, if I could talk to my younger self, I would want to give myself the skills and the language to be able to say that I didn't want to go any further. And I don't know, you know, um, I hope that that's something that people are working on. I imagine that it is. It's something that, you know, maybe maybe it's something I need to do at some point. You know, I think it's important. Um, because I've, I've been reading, I read, there was a great article in the New York Times about how teenagers are watching a lot of porn mm-hmm. and how um, teenage boys and how that influences sexual relationships mm-hmm. among teenagers and that there's some after-school programs that are actually trying to, like, teaching kids about porn, about right. like how it's created, right. about what reality is. Isn't, right. that, isn't that bananas? About um, Because they're like, what, they don't love it? You know, like, right. oh, these women are paid what for this? Like the guys, right. they don't, they, these, I mean, they're, they're, they're boys. Oh, they they, don't, they don't know. Look, I'm the mother of two boys and one of them is a teenager. I know. And I know. it's, this is a really, I mean, I've had like, you know, for him, very embarrassing conversations around these sort of topics. And I think right. it's, I think it's so important. I think that there are parents that are, that they think that they're really open and talking about, like they'll talk to their kids about sex and protection mm-hmm. and everything. But I think that the bigger issue is, um, is emotional protection, not just for, for our girls, for our boys too. I guess what I, 
I don't even know how do I begin telling someone this, but I, it was about it was about three months. It was three months ago now. I was um, on a date and I was nearly raped, uh. and um, it, it. I don't know how I got out of there. It was really by the grace of God that I that I got out of this guy's apartment. But I mean, I kept saying no. I mean, I was very like no. Right. Um, um, it was funny because he. Um, I guess it's not funny, but he, you know, he just kept apologizing and kept wanting to see me again. And, uh, and then sends me like, I mean, I blocked him on everything. And, um, but I got like a new year's card from him. It was very (sighs) weird of him in a paisley shirt. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't mean to laugh, but the ridiculousness. ridiculousness. It's like, dude, you, you tried to rape me. I don't need to see photos of you in a paisley shirt, in a weird paisley shirt and a fedora. And then I'm embarrassed that I almost, that I was dated someone who wore Paisley shirts. And then, like, <laughs> no offense to any Paisley shirt listeners. Um, but, ugh, Dios mio. I mean, that's the thing is that it doesn't, it's not just, you know what? It's not just um, young, young women that this happens to. Right. right? I mean, this right. happens, I mean, I, I don't even know how many times in my life I've had somebody that was a friend or somebody I was dating cross, cross a line. Right. You know, and there are various lines and that line that he crossed with you is criminal. Right. And I think that that's, you know, it's hard right now for a lot of men to take this all in. Right. You know, and, and, Part of it is because, no, they're not all rapists. No. But I think that I think that a lot of men, if they looked back on sort of the history of their dating, I'm not, I don't even know if I can generalize. That. Enough that every woman I know has experienced some variation that they have to look at their own behavior of where they may have pushed a little hard or not, take, not, not heard no the first time. Because I certainly have in my life have had experiences where – I was like, no, and then they sort of talked me into it or I just didn't know how to get out of it. Ugh. And that's that's Ugh. just like, you know, especially when I was younger. And that just like, ugh, it's just a bummer. I mean, that's like putting it really lightly, but, you know, you did have agency over your own body. Right. Because you got out. Right. You but know? it's still like really negatively affects I guess, you. Affects, affects of course, me. yeah, and because it affects your ability to want to be open to people. Because right. this was somebody that you opened up to to a certain degree, right? That when you set a boundary, they violated that, right? And there's something that I've said, you know, so much in like my column <laughs> is like you should never apologize for setting a boundary with somebody. I don't care if they're your spouse, your child, your parent, someone you're dating, a friend, a stranger, we all have a right to set boundaries with people. And you set a very clear and a very important one. And that person did not fucking respect. You're allowed to curse. (laughs) I was like, they are not allowed to cross that boundary. Right. And, And, you know, that's the thing is that there's this this uh, desire from people, I think, when they with with every all of the Me Too stuff coming out and all of us sharing our stories. There's a desire by 
even people that have been through it to be kind of like, okay, can we stop talking about it? Can we, are we over it? And the thing is, is that, as you said, I mean, this stuff affects us and we have a right to process it in in whatever way and whatever length of time it takes. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. So, Aaron, you have been through all sorts of stuff we know about. You have also you also have so many readers and people coming to you. So, what kind of patterns and what kind of wisdom do you have to share with us on how to how people can move forward in their lives? One thing that I say to people when they're sort of stuck behind pain, which is a lot of us, you know, we get stuck behind pain all the time, is that the fear in your brain of walking through that, of confronting it, is always greater than when you're actually doing it. You know, I think I mentioned earlier that people will stay in sort of like, not just abusive relationships, but unhappy, like deeply unhappy relationships, because they're afraid of the pain of leaving. The anticipation of walking through that is always greater than going through it. People that are you know, trying to get sober and they're afraid of the pain of, you know, when they, when you get the the chemicals out of your system, walking through that. So they avoid it. Um, one of the sort of metaphors that I always use in sort of talking about my story, my journey is that from the time I was very young, I felt like I was in a room on fire and, you know, those flames were made of depression. Those flames were made of being sexually abused. Those fra- flames were made of, you know, my own addiction and my own promiscuity that later on as a teenager. And I didn't know how to get out of this room. I was so afraid. And the flames, as I got older, just kept slowly getting closer and closer and closer. You know, I mentioned you know, early in our talk today that when I had my first son, this sort of switch flipped for me. When that happened, I realized that I had to get the fuck out of that room. So I just walked straight through those flames and found the door. And, you know, I know that sounds maybe a little dramatic, but that's what it felt like for me. And I think that that's what it feels like for a lot of people, that the thing that they're avoiding will keep encroaching on them until they walk through it, until they speak their truth, until they they face it. Because once you face looking at exposing the thing that you're so afraid of everyone seeing, you know, and it boils down to this, if people knew this about me, no one would love me. That's like the primal fear that's the 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 great you know nugget in everyone that they're dealing with in all different forms of therapy 
if you know, and it's what I felt when I was a kid, and is it, and you know, and well into adulthood, if people really could see me, nobody would love me. I'm unlovable. And once you get that stuff out there, you find that other people come to you and say, I feel that way too. You know, part of the reason that I do what I do with the advice column is that I want to help people, you know, with my memoir. Yes, I, it's, there's a lot of like, you know, I have crazy stories in there and things that I've been through. And it's, you know, I believe that there's, you know, there's a strong narrative there. I've had an interesting journey, but the, the, the place that I operate from with everything that I do, whether it's the advice column or writing articles or with the memoir or any other book that I write in the future is that I want to make people feel less alone. I want people to, to see their own experience reflected, even if, even if, you know, yes, I had some extreme circumstances with doing drugs at a young age and all of that. Those are sort of extremes, but there are people that went through things that on the surface are far less extreme, but for them, just as emotionally volatile, just as painful. And they feel so alone being stuck in whatever shame or pain they're in. And, you know, I, I hope that, that, you know, I help people through the advice column and, and, and articles and, and, and everything that I do. I certainly have people reach out and, and say that, that it makes them feel less alone. And that's what art is supposed to do, right? Whether Mm -hmm. it's music or a painting or a book or a movie, whatever it is for me, I'm moved emotionally when I see the human experience reflected. And that's all that I'm trying to do is to be a mirror for people so that they know that they can do it too. That's really beautiful. It's, you know, it, I want to bring hope (laughs) because I was hopeless. I was hopeless for a really long time. And I want people to know that you can be hopeless and you can, you can get to the other side of it again. I think that it's, um, I mean, this comes in my practice in terms of you just learn that no matter whatever, how old people are, how much right. money or how little money they have, um, people suffer yeah. universally. Universally, the majority of people are stuck in some sort of suffering. Right. And some of, some of it is um, what's going on is circumstantial. Some of it is their mindset mm-hmm. and their perspective. And um, I mean, that's part of why Buddhism was born, mm-hmm. was created, right? Um, Siddhartha saw, left the castle and saw everyone suffering. Right. And he just did not understand why is everyone suffering and right. how do I get people to stop suffering? Right. But then we evolve. Right. And that's a beautiful thing. Right. You know, I mean, they talk about like the rainbows at the end of something. The rainbow at the end of getting through that kind of stuff is like, it's the best feeling in the world. Not that you wish to have gone through that suffering, but what a gift. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah, I'm really grateful. And I just wanted um, to, for you to address our listeners in terms of how people can get in touch with you. Sure. So every Wednesday on ravishly.com, that's R-A-V-I-S-H-L-Y.com, you can read my Ask Aaron column. You can also find me on AaronCar.com. Um, if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, you'll receive a free ebook, which is my self-care guide, um, all about learning how to take care of ourselves because 
I, for one, need daily reminders. Um, and you can find me on social media, Erin Carr, E-R-I-N-K-H-A-R, on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. Yeah, so thanks again for coming. And um, also you have a memoir coming out soon, Yes, right? I do. So you can, you'll get updates on all of that on, on the website as well. And for you, this is a great opportunity to take this conversation and reflect for yourself about how you can walk through the fire, speak your truth, and practice self-care in terms of loving yourself and making the world a better place just by doing that. Thank you so much. My name is Jessica Brodkin. I am your guest host. You could find me at loveandlightservices.com or Jessica Brodkin on social media, B-R-O-D-K-I-N. Keep on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.